Are you looking for a new math curriculum? CTC Math specializes in providing online video tutorials that take a multi-sensory approach to learning, creative graphics and animation synchronized with the friendly voice of internationally acclaimed teacher Pat Murray makes learning math easy and effective. Favorably reviewed and Kathy Duffy's 103 top picks and the Old Schoolhouse Crew review. The lessons are short and concise to help your child break down concepts and appreciate math in a whole new way. Visit ctcmath.com today to start your free trial. That's ctcmath.com. Did you grow up thinking history was a boring subject or that it was just a collection of dates and times and events that really bear no relevance to your life? And then you got into teaching history to your kids. Maybe you homeschool, maybe you're just a history buff who reads books, and suddenly in your mid-30s and 40s, you think this is the most fascinating subject I've ever studied in my life. I wish kids could think about it the way I do now. Today's guest is going to help you turn that corner and make history come to life for your family. Emily Glankler is the founder of Antisocial Studies, LOL, Antisocial <laughs> Studies. Uh, after years of hearing how little adults learned or remembered from their history classes, Emily decided to open up her classroom to the public through podcasts and social media to supplement the high school history experience with something more engaging. Emily is a veteran high school teacher in Austin, Texas. She earned her degrees in history and international studies from University of North Carolina, and she has her MA from Texas State University. Over the past 11 years, she has taught everything from sixth grade world cultures to high school electives on international relations and contemporary issues. Her primary expertise is AP World History and AP U.S. History. One of my favorite things about Emily is how well-traveled she is and how she uses that expertise with her sense of comic timing on TikTok and Instagram. You can follow Emily at Antisocial Studies in both Instagram and TikTok spaces. Without further ado, I can't wait for you to listen in to my conversation with Emily and new co-host, Melissa Wiley. Welcome, Emily, to the Brave Rider podcast. Melissa and I are so excited to get to know you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I was just explaining the reason that you're on this show is Natalie, who loves to read reviews of the Brave Writer podcast, put me on to you. She has become obsessed with your TikTok and Instagram. She kept sending me reels and she's like, she sounds like you. You guys have the same ideas about critical thinking. And sure enough, I think yours are even funnier and better presented. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, funnier, maybe. I do. I, I, I'm a history teacher with a background in improv comedy. So I feel like TikTok is like my, I feel like it was made for me. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. Just your name, Antisocial Studies, was already so clever. What did you think, Melissa? Uh, that name, I like loved you at first read because of... <laughs> <laughs> anti-social a, studies made me it's laugh a really, really good test because I have met some people who don't get it and I'm like oh maybe my content's not for you like I've met some people who are like so are you really against the teaching of social studies in classes and I'm like oh no it's a joke <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing oh my well, gosh it landed really well with me good <laughs> so glad yeah. So just tell us how you got started on TikTok and Instagram and where your social studies background comes from. Yeah. So I've been a classroom history teacher for 11 years. This is actually my first school year in 11, actually in 12 years where I'm not in the classroom. Um, so I just had a history and international studies degree, master's degree in history. All I wanted to do was sit in a room with a semi-captive audience and talk to them about history all day. That was just the goal. Um, and then, you know, about five years ago, 
I realized that, you know, I wanted to kind of explore other creative outlets as well, but I still, history was a thing I love talking about. And so I started my history podcast and I started anti-social studies mostly because I met so many adults that when I would tell them I was a history teacher, they had one of two reactions. They were either like, I hated history. I hate it. And it made me so sad. Or they would say, oh my gosh, I wish I'd paid more attention in history class. Like, I wish I knew more history now because I read the news and I don't really know what's going on. So that was sort of my mission for starting the podcast. And then my social media channels is just to help you know, people who aren't in the classroom anymore, remind them what the War of 1812 was and why maybe we should know about it or give them fun facts or contextualize the news, that sort of thing. You know, I studied history as my degree at UCLA in my undergraduate, and then I studied theology for my master's, which is basically <laughs> like a field of history, right? Yeah. You're just doing all this document research and um, historical context and digging up old archaeological finds. But what I really, really loved about what you present is that you seem inquiry-based as opposed to information-based. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between studying history for facts and studying history as the discipline of being a historian? Yes. Wow. That is such a good question. I just actually, you know, a week or two ago, someone on Instagram asked me, I, you know, I was like, ask me questions. So, I, and I'll answer them on here. And one of them was like, what are things that you wish people, especially students understood about teaching history? And that's really the biggest one is that People think of history as like the textbook version they got of just being told this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And that's actually just the lowercase h, like record of maybe fact, um, of some facts. But that actual historians approach it almost like the scientific method, right? I mean, you go in with a theory, you might say like, I'd really love to know the connection between these two events. And I think the connection is going to be this thing. It's like your hypothesis. But then like you did with your graduate level research, you then have to go into the documents, you go to the sources. Um, and obviously you have to add your, your, it's all human created sources. So it's not the same as math or science, right? So there's always going to be a lot more subjectivity there. But basically you have to kind of go where the facts lead you, where the documents lead you. And then you come to the conclusion at the end. And I think the thing I mentioned in that video I made was that sometimes the way we teach writing, even we tell students like the first thing you do is have your thesis statement. And it's and I get that your thesis statement goes at the beginning of an essay, but that's not actually the way it should work in your brain. Right. That should actually be the last thing you come to after you've done all the body paragraphs, all the other stuff. Right. That really struck me when I was watching that series of of your reels because it rings so true in that you have to go through, Julie, you call it a topic funnel, as you're sort of distilling the big swirling mass of ideas and getting down to the kernel of, okay, now I know what I really think. And for me, that knowing what I think often comes at the end of a lot of writing. And then I have to chuck all that came before, and now I can write. <laughs> This is why I've a lot of my career has been spent teaching and actually helping other teachers learn how to teach AP history courses, especially AP world history. So we're teaching a much more formulaic style of writing because we're teaching to this test. But I always tell students and teachers that the 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 any student who writes a thesis statement in their conclusion, it's infinitely better than the one they tried in their introduction. Always because they've gone through the process of thinking it through. It's interesting, too, to consider that the interpretation of history actually varies generation by generation by interpreter as, as each person brings their own sort of social location, their own background, the facts that they know, the facts that they were never privy to. There is a sense in which interpretation of history is a very autobiographical event. And sometimes when we're studying history, we act as though the record is pure. Can you talk a little bit about historical interpretation? Okay, this is my favorite, like, you know, real nerd level of history is historiography. And it's the thing I love talking to my students about, where I'm like, if you want to go real down this rabbit hole, right, it's like the history of history itself. And that's actually what I did. In I didn't do, I did a master's program that didn't have like a super formal thesis, but essentially the paper that would have been the equivalent, 
I did it on the historiography of the conquest of Mexico and specifically the interactions between Cortez and Montezuma. And so I was like, let's just look at this hyper-focused, this like meeting point of these kind of two you know, sides of the world. And let's not actually study the meeting itself. What I did was I read every book I could find from, you know, the, what, the 16th century up to today about that meeting and about those two people to just see how it changed over time, right? And that that's a level of history, too, is also analyzing like, well, okay, a Spanish priest is going to document this in one way. And then a, let's say, Mexican historian who's writing it on the 500-year anniversary of Columbus's voyages is going to look back on it very differently, right? Absolutely. In fact, I would say that the study of theology is just that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the dissecting of a previous interpretation rooted in a different social location. But what I love about what you're saying and what I think we sometimes forget when we're teaching our children in, particularly, in particular is that we are so often focused on what we think is a story that is universally understood in the version that we received it. No matter what that book is, whoever wrote it, we just sort of assume an omniscience or a clarity of, of accuracy that isn't, isn't necessarily true. In fact, any interpretation of history is still funneled through a human being on some level. And our current experience of living shapes how we read the past. I, I'm going to just share a little story with you because, Emily, you haven't read my book yet, but Raising Critical Thinkers starts with a really interesting story from my own family. So when my grandparents died, my grandfather died, my grandma was in a home for dementia. We started digging through all of his correspondence and we found this box of letters that had not been mailed. They were in unsealed envelopes and it turned out they were love letters to my grandmother, to his wife. He wrote them in 1997. They got married in 1930. And he told the story of their courtship in one of them. And he says, Dear Eva, do you remember when we climbed the little hilltop to where I first made love to you? And suddenly a huge debate sprung up in my family. Did he mean sex or did he mean putting the moves on his woman? Did he mean declaring his love? Because in the 30s, naturally making love like you can see it in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, he's making violent love to me, mother, right? right. <laughs> she, she doesn't mean sex. But he yeah. wrote this in 1997. And in 1997, those words meant something else. So was he confessing to something else? Or was he using language he thought would jog free her memory because of her dementia? Or was he just in the habit of the idiom from that time and he had never updated his reference? And of course, we don't know. But it's a huge wow. debate in my family. And everybody has a different theory that justifies their interpretation. And that's exactly, I mean, and what's so funny is that you couldn't get closer to the source than y'all are, besides being the source, right? I mean, you are literally as close to the source as possible. You knew this person, you know exactly the context with when, when these letters were written, you know who it was written to, you know everything. And still, you're having this debate about a person you knew, right? So imagine us looking back at someone from 500 years ago and we're doing the same thing and it's we're so removed from them as people that it's almost impossible. This is why it drives me crazy. And I, I understand the instinct, right? But there's all these conversations about teaching history and it, it is inherently kind of political, right? What sure. you decide to talk about. But so many parents or just people in general will, I think with very good intentions, say, we'll just stick to the facts. And it's like people who know history know that <laughs> why that on its own is like an impossible thing, right? Because that's right. I just list out every single thing a historical figure did. And then I just tell my students, have a good day. Bye. I mean, even the facts I choose to present, I mean, all of it is a decision I'm making, right? That's right. Including and excluding what gets featured first, what gets featured last, like even the sequence of the facts indicates a kind of hierarchy. I, I'll never forget when I was interpreting this one document, I was using, did you, do you know the art of hermeneutics by Gerard Gadamer? So he, okay. So he talks about how to read these original texts and he starts with the horizon of the author, right? Or of the text, then the horizon of the interpreter, like how I am 
actually relating to the text. And then it's a fusion of those two that creates the fresh interpretation for today. And so one of the questions he asks when you're looking at the text is, what's included? What is excluded? Who is being addressed? Who isn't being addressed? And I remember the first time I read the Gettysburg Address using that framework, I was like, he never says slave. Like, it, it, it like hit me with this huge shock. Like, I always assumed this was about slavery, but why doesn't he say it? And it just led me down this really wild rabbit trail of understanding that I had I had missed in my grad in my uh, college days. Yeah, and this is the thing too. This is something that, and especially in my classes and a lot of AP classes, we talk about. We use the acronym HIP. And we talk about hipping a document. So it's like historical context, intended audience, purpose, and point of view. But I really love adding that of like, and also who am I? And how am I receiving this document is really great. Um, and one of the things, um, oh, I lost. Oh, no, what I was going to say is, what's funny is that young people are really good at doing this naturally when it is like current media. Meaning if I if I show a student a tweet by someone, they can do this without even thinking about it. And so if I show them some tweet and there's two celebrities that are feuding that they all care about, I can show them one tweet or one post or whatever, and they'll be able to be like, oh my gosh, well, okay, you have to go back five years. You have to understand that they used to be dating and now they're blah, blah, blah. And he's posting this because he knows his followers. And I'm like, you're doing all of it. You're analyzing the context, the point of view, the intended audience. But then you put the Gettysburg address in front of them and they're like, ugh, right? <laughs> but I love that because that is the way to show them the value of doing that. I mean, it's like following Swifties, right? Like they are capable of a level of analysis that is rare in students today. And they do it from a place of true passion and true knowledge. I used to be a huge YouTube fan and I followed a feed every single day of all the internationally published articles. I knew them like the back of my hand. So when there was anyone who made a comment that Bono said something, I knew immediately just from the inside of my body, whether that sounded truthful or not, whether it sounded believable or not. And so part of this also has to do with your depth in the field. And we have a lot of people making commentary who don't have depth, right? Yeah. Yeah, this this to me, and I am myself a Swifty, although I don't get into those conversations on the internet because it is a terrifying place. Man, people, if you say one thing about Taylor Swift on like a TikTok, you are inviting a lot of discussion. But um, but my husband experiences this too. Sometimes I've been walking him through the her all of her albums because we're going to see her live in June. And I'm like, you have to understand the context with which each song is written. So he's experiencing all of this right now. But the experience um, that I have with this is it, it speaks to the need to know some basic facts before you can engage in some of these conversations. And that's where as a history teacher, we have a hard time, right? Because we get bogged down in getting students trying to like memorize as many facts as possible and we lose sight of the fact that well they do need to know facts but they only need to know, need they need to know them with a purpose they need to know them so that then they can have a bigger more high level discussion it's not just about memorizing the facts themselves which is something we all struggle with i think julie that's something you and i have talked about in the context of having pegs of knowledge to hang other knowledge and understanding on and those just serve as as a bare bones kind of framework for then clothing with really rich understanding, which takes a lot of contextualizing and connection making. Yeah, Melissa, talk a little bit about historical fiction writing, because this was something you and I were chatting about before Emily hopped on, and I thought it was relevant. That's right. I was saying that when I was listening to a lot of your reels, Emily, it reminded me of something that I read um, very early when I was getting started as a novelist, uh, it was a book by Gail Godwin called Father Melancholy's Daughter. And in the book, there's a character, a young woman who's becoming a historian. Um, I think she's working on her, her master's thesis, and it's going to be about Hildegard of Bingen. And her aim as she's sort of seeking to write about Hildegard with as much, you know, fidelity and information and historical accuracy as possible, but knowing that there are places where there will be gaps in the record that her she's approaching it with what she called 
respectful imagination. And that resonated so deeply with me. And every time I sit down to learn about a new time period or to explore and begin imagining life in that time and place, respectful imagination is like the the guideline that I keep in front of me. <laughs> I love that. What, what came to mind when you were talking about that is one of the most impactful books that I read in my graduate school study was a book that I think falls under that category. It was called Malinsin's Choices by Camilla Townsend. And it's about, she's sometimes called La Malinche or Malinsin. She's basically the woman who became Cortez's personal interpreter and then actually fathered, she, she had children with him. She had who we think is the first official, at least mestizo child of the new world. She's this really fascinating life, but we know so little about her for a lot of obvious reasons. She was an indigenous woman who was enslaved and basically bought and sold by the conquistadors. So we don't really have anything about her story from her perspective. But so this historian kind of set out to do exactly what you're describing of like, you know what, I am going to take every document I can find that mentions her because Cortez talked about her a lot and how valuable she was. And I'm also going to do a ton of primary source digging on what life would have been like in that time for someone similar to her kind of station and standing. And I'm going to try to piece together her story. And some people might say, well, that's irresponsible. You have to stick to the sources. But the problem is for most of history, women don't have a lot of sources about nope. them. Um, the lower classes of people, whatever that means, don't have don't have stories about them, right? In some societies, people of color. So it's like if we just stick to super, super official stamped kind of historical documents, then we're going to keep telling the same stories over and over again, too. Yeah, and it right. also it, it's foreclosed all kinds of insight and perspective taking, right? The fact yeah. that women didn't write <laughs> for you know centuries that's pretty challenging to sort of supply that data where do you where do you dig to get that information if it isn't through documentation oh man well that's where that's where you really have to be or you have to at least be kind of experienced in the profession of doing history and this is where right i i love people by the way who are fans of history obviously like and i love people who say oh my gosh i'm i'm an accountant by day but a history buff by night i love those people I also I also want to make sure that those people understand that there is a distinction between loving history and watching a lot of great documentaries and actually being trained in the practice of doing history where and that's where that kind of experience becomes valuable of being able to really assess sources and decide okay when can I make sort of a little jump to say I'm going to make some assumption about something that might have happened because I have enough good kind of almost circumstantial evidence to support it as opposed to someone saying like, well, I really want to believe this thing is true and it kind of fits my narrative, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I And I mean, I experienced this too. I In my last school that I taught at, I had a lot of students who were part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so, you know, I was really trying to make sure that my U.S. history class as much as possible was, was showing them that people like them existed in the past. And that's another kind of category of history where sometimes we have to make some leaps and we have to be really careful about how we do that, right? Because... You don't want to go back and put a label on someone that they weren't able to put on themselves, but you also don't want to keep hiding some of these people who very clearly probably would have been part of that community. And so that's where being someone who's kind of like trained in that history and being able to not just go casually on the internet, but actually go read books and primary sources and really valuable secondary sources, you feel a little more comfortable making some of those, what did you call it? Like an imagine, no. A, Respectful imagination. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Right. I would find that often I felt like it got a better picture of the daily life of a woman I was trying to learn about from looking at um, like the accounting books and <laughs> and yeah. economic records, you know, like, oh, she was brewing beer and she was actually making a pretty good income at it. And um, then it turns out like a lot of women in her community, like that was their specialty. They were the brewers. But those stories don't often exist as narratives because right. either women weren't in a position to be able to write about it, or if they did, the writing wasn't preserved. It wasn't valued in a way um, that was protected and and treasured down through the centuries the way that the writing of of men so often was. One, one of my favorite sources that I, when I was able to find it was um, court cases and court transcripts is like, oh, if you can get a woman that was on trial for something and they actually documented it, I'm like, oh, yes, right? You get so excited because 
not only do they sometimes get to speak for themselves, but you also get some very clear analysis within there of like, and we think that this woman should do this because women are supposed to do X. So it's like so valuable, right? To get something like that where you literally have society judging a person, right? And and you can then pick apart all those layers and figure out what was going on at the time. How helpful is artwork in the pursuit of historical record, being able to look at paintings that are from a specific era, like the Renaissance or the medieval era or before that? I love it. And I I love it as especially like in my own classroom, artwork was often such a helpful jumping off point for students because students felt so much more comfortable analyzing a piece of art than they did a written document. And so being able to show them, um, you know, the School of Athens, for example, by one of the Ninja Turtles, one of the, is it Michelangelo, <laughs> Raphael, right? One of them, I'm really, I'm actually really bad at art history, but I know the paintings I teach in class. And like looking at the School of Athens, I'm like, okay, wow, let's spend a whole day breaking down this painting and why they chose to paint all these people. And then we can get into a discussion about why do we think about Greece and Rome as the classical era? Classical for who? And why did they decide they wanted to pick that era? Like there's so much you can pick apart. And I think just like modern media, I was talking before about, you know, analyzing a tweet, analyzing a piece of art also just opens up students' brains because they kind of know, they know it was put through someone's filter, right? They know that someone sat down and chose to paint it as opposed to a written document. Like you said earlier, Julie, like students just a lot of times assume if it's old and if it was printed in writing, then it's just sort of, that's the truth. That's what happened. It is amazing. I think the printed word carries so much weight. I don't know how much of that is actually theological. I've often thought because of the nature of scripture having been so predominant in the West um, and the record of Shakespeare and some of these iconic canonical texts, we really do see the printed word as carrying more authority than images, uh, more authority than an economic record or an archaeological dig in the imagination of a modern student. I'm not saying that's always been true. One of the things that really spoke to me, I went to Peru with my daughter and son uh, as adults, and we went to see Machu Picchu. And as we were going on the tour, they told us that the Inca had never developed a writing system. And then they went on to tell us details of how they conducted their family lives, what the structure of their government was. And I was like, how do you know all this? And I wondered if you could just comment on that. When people are telling us about societies without any written record at all, particularly those that we would not consider in the modern era, what is the process of drawing these very strong conclusions? You know, they'll say things like, and they were shamed for X, Y, Z. And you're like, how do they know that? (laughs) Well, on I mean, in Peru, I've been to Peru actually a few times. It's one of my favorite places to go. And Quechua, which was their record-keeping system, is one of my favorite things to talk to students about. With that being said, I'm not an expert in any of that. But like, what's fascinating about the Inca is we we actually in world history, by my count, only have two groups of people that don't fit the at least Western kind of traditional definition of a, quote, civilization, But we kind of just grandfather them in and say, you know what, you're an honorary member. And it's the Inca and the Mongols because they're the two that never developed their own writing system, right? The Mongols just adopt the Uyghur script when they conquer the Uyghur people in what's today Western China. And so they're the only two groups that like, we're like, well, technically a lot of Western historians say you have to have kind of written record keeping to qualify and be called civilized, but okay, we're going to, you're in because you, you built Machu Picchu and you did some really amazing things, right? So what's interesting is they had this system of basically record keeping that was tying knots in ropes. Um, and they would have these beautiful, I think of like the macrame, like hangings that people have in their homes a lot. That's essentially what they looked like. Um, so that on its own provided some valuable record keeping. Although I will say we still haven't quite figured out what all of it means. There's all these different colors of ropes. But this is where also like archaeology and then, frankly, secondary sources of people who kind of like pass down those stories and then at some point chose to to write them down become really valuable. So that's why, for example, when I was studying like the conquest of Mexico, it's really fascinating because the Aztec too, they had these massive libraries that got destroyed. So people also think of the Aztecs as people who didn't have a lot of the written word and they did, they just were destroyed. And so a lot of what we have that's written, for example, by the Aztec people, it's after they've been conquered. So you have young Aztec men, for example, and they're now living in a monastery. They're being taught by 
um, monks and priests. And then they might say, hey, why don't you sit down and write your story, write the story of the conquest? And it's the most fascinating document of all time because you're asking people who've just had their whole world turned upside down. And they might have believed that they were like literally the center of kind of the universe holding up the sun. And now they've been conquered. And you're asking them, we'll write your story as you remember it. And so (laughs) those become really fascinating. But of course, you have to peel back tons of layers there. So same thing if we have, we have a lot of Spanish documents about the Inca, learning about them from the Inca as they kind of conquered them and tried to assimilate them. And so we can, we can get a lot of really good information that we can pair with archaeology and say, well, this one seems to be probably true. But again, like we talked about before, you have to sift through layers of bias, right? Layers of a very specific point of view from those documents. You bringing up the Aztecs reminds me of something that you said in a reel about how it can, it can be really mind-blowing sometimes to realize how this these separate, discrete historical events that you have in your head because they were presented to you at different times or in different classes. Oh, no, those were happening at the same time. Or this thing was actually older than then. I think Oxford and the Aztecs is what you talk about Mm -hmm. in the real. It's it's one of those facts that goes around, you know, it's like it's memed a lot where it's and I'll get the years a little bit wrong, but Oxford was founded maybe around the year 1100 or something. And the Aztec or as we think they were called the Mexica Empire um, were founded officially in, I think the 13 or 13 was when their city was founded, 1300s and then 1400s. The point being Oxford University is a few centuries older than the Aztec empire. And it's one of those things that really blows people's minds. And I think it's mostly just because the Oxford, Oxford University still exists today and the Aztec empire was conquered. And so they're sort of like halted in this old state. We do it in U.S. history too with presidents. Like everyone just remembers JFK as young, Right. And and it always blows students' mind that JFK and Nixon were only like four years apart. And it's because JFK was killed, right? And he was killed very young. And so it's like we just have this, our memory really changes. I talk to students a lot, and this is the value I think in knowing world history as well. Um, is being able to kind of have these timelines going on to understand that, for example, what's going on in the United States in an era often is just a reflection of something happening around the world. But it also can help us really contextualize. For example, I'm trying to think one of the other facts that I love telling students is that you can cover most of American history across three lives. So you had Thomas Jefferson was alive when Harriet Tubman was born. And Harriet Tubman was alive when Ronald Reagan was born. So if you think about it, <laughs> Most of American history, you, it's just three generations, three very long lives, right? But um, And sometimes that, it can be really helpful, mm-hmm. right? Especially for people who think, well, such and such was really long ago. This thing was a long time ago. And you can go, well, talk to your grandparents. Like maybe some of these things weren't actually as long ago as you think, right? As you can probably tell, I'm a big fan of history. That's why Brave Writer offers online writing classes that teach your kids how to think and research like a historian. And then they will produce a finished writing project that they feel proud of. Our historical fiction writing class for high schoolers starts on February 20th. This is the class for your passionate high school fiction writers or for your kids who need an easier entry point into the study of history. This class is designed by Melissa Wiley, my co-host, who is a children's novelist and a professional historical fiction writer. Another popular class for high school is our rebellious history writing class, and this class starts on April 3rd. It's a content-driven class that centers around rebellions and their place in history. Your kids are going to deep dive into the juicy details and triumphs and trials of past conflicts. Maybe you have middle school students. We have history classes for them as well. The one coming up is called History Projects, and it starts on March 20th. This is the class where your children get to pick an invention or a beloved object or game or toy, and they're going to trace its historical development. Who invented it? What was it used for? What problem was it trying to solve? Did it lead to a craze? 
They're going to dig, excavate, and explore and put that invention in historical context. And then they're going to write about it. All of these classes give your kids the chance to do historical thinking and work, and then combining that with writing. I can't think of a better way to teach history. Our classes last four weeks long. You can take them as a deep dive and then have something to show for it at the end. Learn more by going to our show notes. We'll have links to each of those sessions, as well as a link to our online class schedule. If you have questions about where to place your child, send us a text or an email, and we're more than happy to help you pick the right class for your family. Our text messaging number and our email address are both listed in the show notes. And now let's get back to chatting with Emily. My dad says this, he said to me, he's 86 years old and he said, Julie, what's hard for me to comprehend is that the Civil War is considered a long time ago because my grandfather fought in it. Like he had a relative who was in it. And so for him, it just always seemed like it wasn't that long ago. And that's how I feel about World War II. But my kids feel about World War II the way I felt about the Civil War. And so starting to realize that when you can touch it through a generation that you knew, it makes it feel a lot more proximate. But then the longer you live, the further away that gets. And holding on to that memory for the sake of the next generation is so challenging. I think, you know, I did my thesis actually on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's resistance to um, Hitler. He was a part of the movement that wanted to kill Adolf Hitler, and he had to reconcile that with his faith. But for me, that feels very present. It doesn't feel like a long time ago because his teachings have been so influential in the shaping of how people think over the next couple of generations. But one of his main planks is that without memory, we cannot shape history. And the most important aspect of historical record is preserving and reamplifying memory over and over again. And he felt that the rise of Hitler was a, a, a regression, a lack of memory, a lack of preserving what we know about human beings, about the Jewish population, all of it, um, what happened in World War I, all of it. And so for me, that has been kind of a, a touchstone to recognize that part of preserving the historical record is memory. It is making sure that the things, as they get more remote, we don't forget their import. We don't forget the impact or the lesson that we gained from that experience. Yeah. And this is where I think, you know, there there are people kind of in my profession of like history educators who don't like what is sometimes called the TikTokification of education, right? That, oh gosh, everything's getting pared down to these like three minute, that should be really <laughs> engaging and funny and you have to have a cute little caption and whatever. And I don't know, I see it the exact opposite, right? Because I think like what an amazing tool to be able to humanize things from the past. And this is where even, you know, sometimes I'll make, there'll be a trend going around of some sound by a Kardashian or something. And of course, you know, everyone on TikTok then makes their own version of it. And if I can take that sound and then put like Eleanor Roosevelt's face on it and apply it to her life... I'm like, what better way to remind us that she was just a real person who, you know, experienced real things and that what if she was around today? Would she have a TikTok account? What would she say? Like, I think that anything we can do to humanize, like you said, kind of revive those memories over and over again and tell them in a way that, I mean, however people are talking now, that's how we should be trying to talk to students too about things from the past. Right. I remember being so, um, Throne. The first time I saw a colorized photo of soldiers from World War One. Yeah. Oh yeah, and like they looked like real people in a way that I realized they had not before. They looked like history. Yeah, <laughs> they looked like a thing that existed in the past. But as but just that artificial color laid on top. Oh, it looked like it could be today. <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a filter, a face filter on TikTok. I promise I'm not sponsored by TikTok or whatever, but there was like a <laughs> face filter that went around where you could put any photo in and it would make the photo kind of come to life and they'd like kind of smile. And people started doing it with historical figures and it was scary. It was freaky because it was like, oh my gosh, George Washington was a real person. Like it just really, it really gets you, right? And I think that again, the more that we can remind people 
that everyone from the past was really no different than we were. Like, I joke all the time. I'm like, George Washington wore underwear. He put on pants every morning. Like, he might have had a fight with Martha before he crossed the Delaware on that boat. Like, who knows? And I think all of that makes it more interesting for students to study. And and again, that's where you get creative, right? And sometimes in class, I like to kind of do pop psychoanalysis of historical figures. And, you know, I always kind of remind my students, this is mostly for fun, but it's also for the purpose of reminding us that like these people were just normal people just like we are, right? Yeah, like you could do their astrological reading, you could figure out their Enneagram type, right? I, I think that's why Pleasant T. Rowland's genius idea of the American Girl doll series was so powerful because yes. she really wanted kids to read, but she also wanted it to have this sort of academic content. But she did it through what it feels like to be a young girl, not through helping young girls read about old people. And yeah. I, I do think we forget that. Um, my son, Liam, he went to college at St. John's in Annapolis, which is a great books program. And I remember him saying to me after year one, which was mostly classical education, right? So it's ancient Greeks. And he's like, these people were smart. They are smarter than us. You know, we kind of think there's been like progress, like our brains are smarter, but like actually we're working with the same gray matter, just different levels of technology. But there is a certain genius throughout history. And it's very easy to get in a Western mindset of progress and superiority. And I think it's really good to kind of level that playing field. I completely agree. I think this is where, again, I love, you know, U.S. history is something that I I probably produce more content about U.S. history because, frankly, that's where my audience is and what they want to know about. But my real passion is world history and especially non-Western history. It's one of Mm. the things I actually weirdly love about the AP world history curriculum is that they've really modernized it. They've cut out, they do the last, it's just the last 800 years. So that doesn't, that sounds like a lot of time, but that's nothing for a world history (laughs) teacher, right? right? We used to start with like the invention of fire. So it's like (laughs) the last 800 years and we can spend so much more time in parts of the non-Western world where students can look at a place we learn about the Majapahit and the Srivijaya civilizations, which I had to Google and learn about before I taught about them, right? And they can learn about like all of the innovations that they had in their trade and all the, they allied with sea pirates and all these really cool things. And they can go, oh, wow, that place is real. And it existed before, you know, Europeans showed up and they have the, just as long or sometimes a longer history than we do. And it it humanizes people in the current world too, right? It helps us build empathy for people who don't look like us or don't live like us. If we start to realize that, oh, they have this like long story just like I do. I had that experience directly in Thailand and Cambodia when I went to visit my son who worked there. I remember we went to all these different Buddhist temples when we were in Bangkok. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that their image of the most divine person was reclining and smiling all the time, all the time. And I just started to see this image like, wow, that that actually shapes how you understand the world, right? Like in the West where Christianity is so dominant, the primary image is of someone on a cross in pain and their dominant image is laying down, (laughs) reclining with a big smile. And I, I, you forget that our imaginations are shaped by the repeated exposure to those things. And then we went over to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. That was the biggest empire of its time for centuries. Yeah. And now Cambodia is the poorest, one of the poorest countries on the planet. And I, the gap between those two experiences, just being there in person, it's what I call in my book, encounter. It's so different than reading about it. It's like the physical sort of felt experience of being in the presence of something life-altering. I, I, I It was hard to reconcile, which is good. Like I'm not able to reconcile it, but it left me with this awareness of the transience of time, of how temporary power is, how much we take for granted when we're in the powerful position right? It was just, it it like hits you in a different way. This is something, Angkor Wat is the number one on my bucket list, by the way. Oh God, it's worth it. Definitely go. It's the number one place that I'm like, take me there tomorrow. And I actually work with a a travel, an educational travel company. I'm actually, I build, um, I'm building historical travel experiences for adults. Um, This is something we're just starting in the summer. If you want to come, we're exploring the Ottoman Empire in Europe. We're going to go to Vienna, Budapest, and Istanbul and talk all about the Ottomans. And 
because I've had that same experience many times. I, um, I'm not like an overly emotional person. Um, and I, I've been to Machu Picchu twice and I've wept. I don't use the the verb wept very often. (laughs) And I wept on top of Machu Picchu. And I was like, these people did something so amazing. Right. And there was another site near Machu Picchu called Ollanta Tambo, and it's it's another building structure, and it's such a fascinating place to go as a history person because it was being built when the Spanish arrived, and it was like one of the last refuges of the last um, Incan emperor. They actually the Inca fought the Spanish for forty years. It's something we forget. They didn't get conquered right away. It was a 40-year civil like war with the Spanish, right? And so this was this last refuge right on the outskirts of the Amazon. And you could see where there was a huge boulder like that weighed a literal ton that they were carrying up this mountain to build. And you can see where it got set down somewhere because literally they heard the Spanish are coming and we need to turn and fight. Like it's one of those places where you can be like, oh, and the boulder then just stayed there forever because they, they had to stop building and turn and fight. And it's some of those places, and I mean, if you have the privilege of being able to travel, it's just, yeah, there's just something different about standing. I had it recently. I went to Istanbul a few months ago, and in the Hagia Sophia, I wept again and was like, wow, this is one of the most amazing things that you don't realize how huge it was and thinking about how old it was and how much that place has seen is really incredible. I think that sense of wonder that you're expressing is so important to how we bring history to kids. And if we can spark that same sense of wonder and question upon question upon question, then they're hooked. You've caught them. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do when I start my world history class is before I teach them anything, I just give them a fake scenario. They don't know it's actually the Persian empire, but I give them a fake scenario and I say, okay, what would you do? You have all these different diverse groups. How are you going to rule them? Is everyone equal? Are some people more? What is your government going to look like? And we spend a few days and they build their own fictional empire. And then what ends up happening is students predict about 80% of what's going to happen in my class. <laughs> like, wow. The first few days, I'm like, oh, great. And I keep note of it. And so later I might be like, if we're talking about... Um, the Ottomans and, you know, a, a way that they, you know, they took soldiers from conquered places as Janissaries. And I go, hey, by the way, that's what Sam, that's what you said you were going to do in like week one. You did what the Ottomans did. Great thinking, right? Or depending on how you feel about that system. So it's funny because if you if you take away the scariness of like it's old and it's formal and it's boring and it's written and you just say, okay, you're a person, let's say you're George Washington and you need to figure this out. What do you do? You'd be amazed at how often students predict the thing that actually happens. And then all of a sudden, you're not teaching them something they have to memorize. You're confirming like, wow, you approach this in the same way as George Washington. How cool is that? Maybe you should go be a military general, right? What a fantastic strategy. Yeah. What were you going to say, Melissa? (laughs) Just that that is you're engaging them in the act of respectful imagination. Yeah. And it becomes a point of personal connection and reference. I love that. Yeah, and it's another way to remind them that like they're not any different than you. You might be a leader, you might be president one day. Like, guess what? <laughs> like you, you're not any different than them, and which can be really exciting and also a little terrifying, right? As you become an adult and go, oh wow, does anyone know what they're doing? I kind of feel like I'm supposed to know what I'm doing now, right? But I think that's when history gets really interesting. And that's where, you know, I'm always willing to, and again, it depends on where you are and how you're teaching and what your state asks of you and what your school asks of you. But I'm always so happy to skip over some content and sacrifice some content so that we can slow down sometimes and have these bigger conversations, right? That like not all content from the past is equal. There are some things, you know, do kids really need to know about the tariff of 18 whatever? No, probably not. They're probably going to be fine if they don't remember what that is. But having like a long discussion about reconstruction and historical memory about the Confederacy, is that a thing that's really going to like engage them and help them think critically? Yeah. And if I have to skip some other stuff to spend more time on that, then that's always valuable to me. It's interesting as you're saying this, I'm thinking about how homeschoolers typically teach history. And 
the way that we do it is we usually start with historical fiction to engage them in a story, That's you know, great. get them immersed in the world, get them hearing the sounds, tasting the food, seeing the sights, feeling the atmosphere. Uh, and then from there, we supply the additional context, maybe some actual text or documentation. But I know in my family, we tr I was always trying to go multi-sensory. So we would maybe watch a film if we could, if it was set in that time, read a book, get out some nonfiction from the library. And then we did a lot of like making candles or acting things out or trying on costumes. This is young kids. I'm not talking high school, but that, but I was always wanting them to understand that the experience of history is three-dimensional. It isn't two-dimensional, which is how it's been relegated to print on a page and memorizing information. Um, one thing I have noticed for my family that worked really well is we start with concentric circles. I talk about this in my other book, The Brave Learner. So we start with the history of you. And the first place I start with my kids, especially when they were young, is I would print out a bunch of photos that I had taken over like a week's time. And then I'd mix them all up and I'd ask them to put them in order. Now, it seems like that would be easy, but it wasn't always because they're brushing their teeth. How do we know which toothbrushing picture came first? How do I remember which outfit was Monday and which was Tuesday? They start asking like historical inquiry questions just to analyze their own lived experience with a faulty memory. It's it's really fun. And then you can validate it, of course, because with digital photography, everything is timestamped. So you can find out if you were right. You have the answer key already. That's yeah. right. Right. <laughs> and that gives you information. But then there's also the next level, which is then the whole family taking a record, maybe going back and looking at a photo album of your parents and trying to piece together the story of their childhood and the sequence of photos and what clues you have that tell you this child is older in one photo than another so that you're actually doing a historical imagination right from the get-go. You're not just giving, well, your mom was born here and then she lived here and then they moved here. You're actually helping them piece the story together through the documentation available and ask those questions. And then of course you can move to your community and finally, you know, your state and your country and then move backwards. Awesome. But yeah. That's amazing. I, it reminds me that, you know, an activity I used to do a lot um, because I, I will say a skill that's really important for becoming kind of a, a historian is periodization, right? Being able to say, okay, this era, these general things were kind of happening, right? Is It's really helpful. It's like having a cheat code where you can make a lot of kind of educated assumptions, right? We're talking about what if I don't know exactly what this woman's life was? You can go, well, let's think about the time period she was in and what was generally happening. And what I love to do with students, especially high schoolers, is ask them to divide their life up into eras, which now Taylor Swift has given us all a gift because Taylor Swift has divided her whole thing into eras. It's she my has. reputation era. Then it's my whatever. So, um, and I would always do it first. And I would just, and I would always talk about what would be your like BCE CE moment, you know, for me, is it before mm. Leon after Leon? That's my son's name. Right. Or wow. And, and like dividing up your eras and saying, well, when does, when did my childhood end? And I'm like, you know what? I kind of think my childhood ended when I was 24 and here's why, or whatever. And having students do that, and then talking to them too about how this is how history is made. This is how historians do it, right? I mean, there's no, we don't, we didn't have to call a certain era the medieval era. People decided it was medieval for some reason. People, some people called it a dark age, not because it was literally dark all the time, but because of some story they were trying to tell. Well, how can we be enlightened if we came out of other light? We have to come out of the dark, right? So, that's another example of that. But I love that idea of like applying it first to their life to kind of see that it's all subjective, but also just kind of see how it happens. Right, right. And giving them that sense of chronology. I think one of the favorite things, I know you'll know this is true, Melissa, homeschooling mothers in particular, once they hit about 35, they become obsessed with history. And they're always like, why didn't I like it when I was younger? And I always like to tell them, it's because you finally have a few decades under your belt. You know, when you're six, anything before you were born feels like unreal time. It doesn't even feel real. Once you have a few decades and the longer you live, the more fascinating it becomes. I was talking with my daughter who is 33 and has a child now. And she said, I was just thinking about how my son is going to grow up and he's going to think the era I grew up in didn't really happen. I said, that's right. That's exactly what will happen. And she said, but mom, I still can't really wrap my mind around the idea that the 60s and 70s were real. And I said, well, you'll get there because right now for me, 
all of the 20th century now seems real, but it didn't when I was your age. And I think there is, you know, so to expect a child to metabolize decades and centuries might be too much, but to help them experience time passing or how you put things in a chronological sequence gives a, a hint of that. It gets them moving in that direction. I was just going to make a joke. I was going to say the millennial joke is that the 80s were always 20 years ago. Yeah, and like, I will never give so up the true. fact that the 80s were 20 years ago. And like, right. I don't care how old I am now, right? <laughs> I will never forget the shock I experienced. Um, the first time I taught the historical fiction writing course that I developed for Brave Writer. And in the opening materials, you know, I had said that sort of anything that occurred more than 25 years, 25 to 30 years in the past is in children's publishing, you know, that's sort of considered historical fiction. And the first assignment, these kids were turning in stories that were set <laughs> yep. when I was in high school. And I was yep. like, no, 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 I said it had to Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, man, there's, you know, students now are referring to the 1990s as the late 1900s, right? Like the late night. Oh, you were born in the late 20th century. And it's like, oh, my God. And this is where, you know, it, it, one thing that is that is interesting to me, and especially as someone who puts out a lot of historical content just out onto the Internet to be consumed by anyone, which is sort of a terrifying thing is how much harder it is to teach people about recent history in a way that everyone can kind of get on board with. And I'm experiencing this right now. I'm working on my next... My next podcast episode is all about the 1980s, and I've been dreading it. I have been dreading... There is not a decade I hate talking about more than the 80s, and it's only because everyone has a wildly different take on the 80s. You are right about that. Right? You are so right. About it's that. like, it's either the most nostalgic decade with the best music and the best movies and the Goonies and the whatever, or it is like a horror scape for some people, or it's really political for some people. I mean, it's a nightmare to teach about. And I think that right now where we are, the 1980s is right on this cusp of like, is it about to become like settled history where we can kind of just all sit down and assess it. But it's still just recent enough that there are a lot of people that still have very personal feelings about that decade. The 90s and on, you know, we just kind of pop in there and talk about current events they need to know about. But I don't even really try to make sense of the 90s and on yet. But the 80s is now this, this frontier where historians and history teachers are like, I got to somehow figure out a way to give a succinct overview of this decade. And it is, it's tough. <laughs> I think it was a pivotal decade is partly yeah. why. And I honestly think that's how the 60s were for a while. And, yes. I, you know, I, and these, there's a sort of, um, the there's sort of a, a movement forward and a backtracking, what I call retrenching, that seems to occur every 20, 30 years in the United States. And so yeah. that was right on that cusp, right? There was some retrenching going on, but also still some exploration. And it just feels... It, I, I got in a huge argument with my kids over Christmas about the 80s. That's why I can't yeah. even believe you're bringing this up. <laughs> they were they were convinced that the 80s were nothing but just absolute excess in every way, in yes. terms of profit, everything else. But my experience of the 80s after the 70s, and I came of age in the 80s. I graduated from college in 83. I graduated high school in 79. My experience of the 80s was a huge retrenching to tradition. I was in a yeah. sorority, big weddings, everybody doing, getting the married thing going. It was a very like, Reagan was wearing tuxedos, not, you know, sweater vests <laughs> like Carter. Like yeah. there was this huge traditionalism that came in at the time that excess was happening on Wall Street and happening in like the party culture. So when you say it's hard to categorize, like they didn't believe me. They're like, your mm -hmm. experience doesn't count, mom. We know because we read a book <laughs> about, you know, um, John Belushi. I'm like, okay, those are two really different different takes on the 80s. Yeah, they watched <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street and right. then went, okay, I know the 80s now, you know, and it's, again, I think that the more you talk to young people about, like we said before, their life and like, okay, well, make sense of your life and they can't and go, well, great, yeah, then we can't make sense of any decade or, I mean, a decade is just an arbitrary you know, determination anyway, but it's like the more that we can go back and forth, like you're saying with the the experience you had with that letter from your grandfather too, is like the more we can go back and forth and be like, right, so it's no different. Like we can have, and we can have debates about the 80s all day as long as they're rooted in 
fact and experience, and that's great. But I think that, yeah, students still, and it makes total sense, they want that security of like, well, just tell me. Just tell me what it was about and tell me what was World War II about. And I'm that annoying teacher, wife, mom, whatever, that someone will be like, can you explain World War II to me? And I'll be like, okay, well, we have to go back to the 18th century. (laughs) (laughs) No! (laughs) My five-year-old came home from kindergarten and was like, we learned about Martin Luther King Jr. today because it was MLK Day. And I, it took all my self-restraint. I was like, okay, just tell me what you learned. And I promise I won't add anything more right now. Like I, because he's five, you know, and he learned some really cool stuff. And I asked, I go, do you want to know more about that? And he said, no, thanks. And I was like, (laughs) one day you will though. In my family, we use uh, the West Wing as a sort of jumping off point um, in high school for learning about government. And and we stop it often to discuss or contextualize. And I've noticed, um, listening to my husband watch it with our two youngest, who are 14 and 16, it stops more and more and more because there's so much more context (laughs) that needs to be injected. Okay, so here's what to know about this. Backstory. I do it even with fictional stuff and my husband is a saint, but like we'll be watching (laughs) Black Panther and I'll be like, okay, well, wait, this is inspired by the civilization of the Congo and let me tell you all about it. Like like it's, and I think for me, it makes every, it makes the current world more interesting. I just think it makes it all more interesting. Um, And that's where I think you can get, once you can get past the like, okay, I know some basic facts about history. I know some basic eras of what's going on. Unfortunately, that's where most students' history education stops, and then they never pick it back up again. And it's like, oh, it's like learning some basic formulas in math, and then and never then using putting them. them away. And then you can't make any cool discoveries, right? You're just like, well, I memorized the Pythagorean theorem. I don't know why I needed to know that, right? And so <laughs> that's why I love that history is becoming such a big thing on social media and podcasts and documentaries and shows. Because like you say about the women that hit their 30s and go, why do I like history now? It's like you understand why why it's meaningful now. Correct. Gosh, Emily, I feel like we could just keep going for another hour. (laughs) You are so engaging. And I love that we're talking about history. Like I, I love it to my core. I remember when I was deciding on my major, I was a theater major. You had started by saying you used to do improv. So me too, too. basically actress. Same same with Melissa. Maybe that's why we all have podcasts. (laughs) We should start an improv troupe all about, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started. That sounds too fun. But anyway, what I was going to say is I started as a theater major and then very quickly shifted to history when I saw I was in LA. So I was like, eh, I don't want to be in that Hollywood world. And so I was looking for a major. And I thought, you know what? The only major that sounds interesting to me is the one that would tell me what we've all been up to forever. Like, that's how I thought about history. I just want to know, what have human beings been up to? Like, I need to have a bigger picture for my existence than just this. I need to know, like, well, how did we get here? Where are we going? Where did we come from? And if you bring that energy to it, history is really interesting, I think. I agree. That's why my my kind of tagline at the moment is like contextualizing the chaos one historical tangent at a time. It's like, Beautiful. we'll get there. It might not be in order, but like, I'm going to pop around and I'm going to talk to you about a lot of stuff because I agree. It's like the news. All of a sudden I can consume the news in a way that's more meaningful than before. I can watch shows and movies. I can talk to people from other fields and provide some something they don't have, right? I mean, they might not know a lot about one field and then I can say, well, actually an interesting fact, you know, this thing you just said has been happening for hundreds of years. And it's like, it's, it's like a fun party trick, but I think it also makes you a more well-rounded, like human. Absolutely. Right. A participant in our community and society. I'm going to end with my favorite reel that you just did recently because (laughs) my stepdad was in Scientology. I was in Est, which is like a cult, but not, but also is. Uh, And so I'm always drawn immediately to anything L. Ron Hubbard or anything Uh cult-like, anything a little bit culty like Sarah Edmondson's podcast. And you did one on what does the L stand for with L. Ron Humbert. And I could not believe I did not know that. And then yep. when you told me the name, do you want to just reveal that? I was like, what? Oh my gosh. I, well, and it's, and it, and it stands for one of my favorite historical figures of all time, which is why this is so fascinating. So the, I think a lot of people thought his name was L. Ron, like all one word, E-L-R-O-N, mm. but it's L period Ron Hubbard. And it stands for Lafayette. Unreal. So 
Lafayette Ron Hubbard, and he went by L. And I was reading a whole, it was a Sarah Vowell book on Lafayette. And she just threw that out as a little fun fact. And I was like, oh, I got to make a video about this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you want more fun videos about those kinds of tangents, historical tangents, Emily's your girl. She's on anti-social studies is her name on TikTok and Instagram. And she means it as a joke, people. She's not against social studies. I'm very pro-social studies. <laughs> very pro. She's just very anti-social, as you can tell. Doesn't know how to chat. Doesn't <laughs> like conversations. But Definitely otherwise, you'll love her. For yeah, sure. such an introvert. <laughs> Lisa, you have any concluding thoughts? No, but this, I could keep going for another hour. I have so enjoyed getting to hear from you. <laughs> I've really enjoyed being here. Y'all ask such great questions. And I, yeah, I'll talk about history all day. So this was fantastic. Thank you, Emily. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm loving this new format. It means the world to me that Melissa is a part of these shows, and we really enjoyed our time with Emily. I hope she'll come back and talk with us again in the future. For now, have a fantastic day, and thanks for tuning in. Anything you heard us reference, Emily's Instagram and TikTok accounts, the online classes you can take, Uh, where to find out more information about Brave Rider. All of that is forever and always in the show notes. Hey, Brave Rider listeners, another five-star review for you. And this one comes from the Dugan family. It's titled Encouraging for the Soul. Julie Bogart has been a steward of my heart since the beginning of my homeschooling journey. Her podcast is a source of delight, inspiration, and encouragement. She shares wisdom on parenting and homeschooling that energizes my soul. Thank you, Julie. Thank you to the Dugan family. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.